Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. It's time to cast off on a new adventure. This is Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Habgood. For BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years. Hello and welcome to Real Adventures with BF Goodrich to celebrate the 150th anniversary of BF Goodrich. Get up to $150 cash back when you purchase four or more passenger or SUV tyres. And the man in the Gold Coast, good morning, Mr Dangerfield. How are you? Good morning, Redmond. Going well. Going well, slightly better than uh, a few Coast Guard members off uh, the coast of the US where shots were fired. Which is quite <laughs> astonishing. A handful of US Coast Guard members had a close encounter with a, uh, I believe it was a, a short fin Mako. Um, quite astonishing to see them opening fire on the surface of the water trying to protect swimmers. Well, did you make it, Redmond? Well, the swimmers were swimming on a pink... Uh, unicorn, I think it was, Pat, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's right, uh, an inflatable thing. You know, it, it, <laughs> not, a, not a real one, but uh, real one. it was pretty intense. Uh, shots into the water while there's swimmers at this shark. It wasn't, what do you reckon, 10 metres, 15 metres, This the shots were hitting the water right, right next to these swimmers. I don't know. I think yeah, it's... it was quite, a, quite astonishing to see. Apparently the crew hadn't, um, they hadn't had any sort of time to themselves for about a month, so... Um, it was time to go for a bit of a swim, a bit of a relax, and all of a sudden, they've yelled out shark and chops the fight. Quite astonishing um, vision. If you want to see the vision, you can go onto the, the CNN website, basically. They were the ones that published it. And amazing to see. I haven't quite experienced anything like that, Redmond, have you? I can't say I've uh, had shots fired when I'm in the water, and I don't plan to ever have that happen, I don't reckon. But during the week, some massive news in your world, the footy world, that we all... Uh, Thoroughly enjoying back home in Victoria because there's not much else to do, Patrick. So thank you to the AFL boys for keeping our weekly uh, nights uh, up to date with the footy, which is – I love it, to be honest with you, Pat. I uh, Sitting at home each night, watching the footy, it like, gives something to do, something to look forward to. But back to what I used to say, it used to put structure in your week. Well, I still don't know if it's Saturday because I don't even know when a round starts, to be honest with you, because I think a round ended <laughs> yesterday and it starts today. So I'm not sure what round we're up to, but I know that you boys are playing on Sunday. Am I correct? We are. We've got the – we had the bye, <laughs> which is a nine-day turnaround. Um, but you're right. I've been amazed how many people actually messaged me saying we're loving the footy, especially Victorians, because – you know, everyone's under uh, such strict down lockdown conditions. So, um, and even the Queenslanders, they're loving it. So I think, and Dane Zorko was on uh, radio during the week and talking around the, you know, the changes to the grand final where it's now going to be played in, in Queensland and more specifically Brisbane. But just the growth opportunities for the sport up here. And, and that's honestly true. It's amazing how many people you do see kicking footy in parks, just sort of drive around 
the different parts of the Gold Coast. So huge opportunities for the AFL uh, to grow the game up here, albeit under sort of extraordinary circumstances. And no doubt a, a tough decision with sort of the other candidates being South Australia and Western Australia. That was going to be my question for for you. Uh, WA, Optus Stadium, and I haven't seen it in person, but obviously on TV and the likes, you've obviously played there. That's an amazing stadium, isn't it? Oh, spectacular. Spectacular. Um, yeah, it's amazing. State of the, uh, it'd be one of the best stadiums in the world. In terms of the tech that's there, um, it's just about as good as it gets. And it makes sense. It's the newest stadium, 60,000 people. Um, but the biggest drawback was clearly the, the quarantine regulations that Western Australia has, have, um, which is a double-sided sword because when we're in Western Australia, it was just sensational because there was, it was like we're in another world. There was no COVID. There was, you know, talk about social distancing, people just going about their normal daily lives. So whilst it's been strict, you, you can't blame them because in a world pandemic, Western Australia have handled it incredibly well. So I get this sort of stance with we're not going to buckle for the AFL. That makes my view, it, makes, it would have made sense to play there if it's all about crowd, um, an environment because it's the biggest stadium, the biggest return, but clearly the um, and it's a wonderful place. Let's make that perfectly clear. I, I, yeah, I just think it's incredible. Bit of respect um, to the Gabba but, as well. It's been around a long time, the Gabba as well. So um, a lot of people, has been. yeah, I respect and, that. And, and, the, and the Queensland government. The only reason the AFL season has has got away is with the work that the Queensland government have done. So. In terms of an industry, we couldn't be any, any more thankful for what they have done. Um, they've just been amazing. That's the only reason that, that, that everyone's enjoying footy this year. So they thoroughly deserve um, the, the, the grand final and the final series to be played here. So um, what's going to be interesting is where sort of preliminary finals are being played. So Tim McLaughlin in his press conference during the week um, sort of made it clear that, that was going to be difficult if a Western Australian team, which would obviously be West Coast, earned the right to host the final there, given the quarantine measures. So I think we'll see that play out in the coming weeks with where all that sits. So I think that's going to be difficult at this stage. They might get that first final away if they earn it and finish top four. Um, but otherwise, it would be you know, South Australia with, with Port Adelaide earning a home final initially because there is that border control between Queensland and um, South Australia is, is far more relaxed and teams can fly in and out. So, um, bit to play out, but, I, you know, I think the right call's been made with Queensland and everything they've done for the sport, Redmond. Yeah, well, I'm just glad it's going ahead because, uh, like I said to you before, we're not uh, sure where we're at in Victoria. We find a little bit more out tomorrow, but I just think what... What the you know I'm going to give credit to Gil what he's probably gone through and the amount of effort that he's put into this to make the AFL happen and here in Victoria I can guarantee you I uh, we we thank you for letting you boys run around and entertain us every single night of the week it's, it's bloody unreal. Uh, Redmond, uh, onto your boat. You have done a bit of work this week around the new 175 Mercury that you've been that you're putting on it. Um, and more specifically, you've learned a little bit about Mercury's adaptive speed control. It's something um, you're quite excited about. I'm extremely excited. And we all know Mercury, uh, would you say, Pat, they're well ahead of other brands, I guess, in the technology side of things, as in going what's into the uh, into the engine itself, would you say? It's leading the way? Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, 
all all outside manufacturers. There's, there's, you know, there's not a poor one that exists at the moment, but um, Mercury have invested a huge amount in the tech that they have um, in their outboards, and well, this just speaks to that, I think. Yeah, well, uh, just quickly on the North Bank, my one, I'm not sure where yours is at. I haven't even asked you that yet, but my boat is currently put together, so the top and the bottom deck is together now, and it's not far away. I actually need to speak to Rob on how it's going to make its way down to the Melbourne Marine Centre. Pat, do you have any ideas how they're going to do that with the border? I actually don't with border control. That was one of the things that sort of concerned me. Um, do you just want to quickly go through that? It's quite fascinating when you talk about the, the two hulls that you you put together, yep. or the two shells. Um, it's a really interesting process because obviously you have the, the hull, so the bottom part of the, the boat, which is constructed first, but the same... Um, construction method is how they create the top side of the hull as well, isn't it? And then they're basically screwed and then fiberglass together. Yeah, spot on. And I'm not a boat builder, and uh, but I've seen a few boats get built. Your boat's a little bit... We will get into Mercury in a second as we get distracted like we normally do. But... Yeah, you're spot on. So the bottom mould comes out. It comes out of the mould, which is the bottom shell of the hull, and then the middle the, the middle deck. I'm going to call it the middle deck because we're going to talk about yours. It's called the top side, but that gets screwed together, glassed together, and then literally screwed. Like I, I'm going to post a, I posted a photo actually during the week of my boat actually getting built. If you want to have a look, head to um, my Instagram page, and you'll be able to see exactly. It's it's like pretty much screwed, pop riveted, and that's what it is. Yeah. And then they yep. run the gunnel rubber obviously around that which if you look at the picture itself, it actually looks pretty ugly, doesn't it? It actually looks quite tacky, but that's how they join them together. And then they put the rubber the rubber going over the top of it. You don't even know that it's there, and it looks amazing. I think that's actually why the gunnel rubber's there. For you, crashing into piers, but I think that's why it's there. But <laughs> then you've got the third section, which I was going to talk about your part, uh, your boat, Pat. You've got the hard top. So yours is a three process of putting together. So your bottom gets made, then your top deck puts together, and then your hard top has to be another mould itself, and then that has to be then placed on top of the top deck. So you've got three processes into that 750 hard top, which you're getting. So it's a big process, and it's not easy to do either like the the amount of effort and work goes into just getting them not building the actual hull itself and glassing it together it's actually putting them together so it's extraordinary what they can do but we got off track and we're going to talk back to mercury so i had a meeting with the with the crew at mercury during the week uh, running us through basically everything their engines do and it was really extraordinary. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk a bit about it, a bit of information about it each week of what these engines are capable of. And I'm going to get some information on your engines too, Pat, to talk about. Uh, you've got the two, am I right, two 200s, twin 200s? Two 200s, V6s, just well, to keep that weight down. Yeah, well, I think that is exactly the same. I think the 175, which I'm getting the 200, are pretty much exactly the same as in with what I'm going to be talking about. But Mercury have uh, got an adaptive speed control. What I mean by that is, say, for example, you're out and you're turning the boat around, uh, you're going for a drive and you do you, you make manoeuvres or you turn the boat and it gives you this sports feel of this boat. And what it does, it doesn't lower your revs or drop your revs down for what you're revving at. So say, for example, I did a turn in the boat and we're not going to be out there turning around like idiots all the time. So, But when you do make a turn, if you're trolling and you make a turn, the active the adaptive speed control what it does is it actually maintains your revs so the ecm in the computer there it actually 
holds those revs at three and a half thousand and quite often or for whatever you're doing so quite often what happens when you make a big turn your boat gets sluggish and it drops into the water quite deep and it, and it drops its revs down and then it starts to come up or you accelerate out of it trying to push the engine out of a turn where this with mercury's technology it actually maintains those revs you can take your hand off the throttle and it will hold that rev and stay at that rev so that there is extraordinary and another one just to uh top it off which i'm pretty excited about especially trolling for bluefin tuna pat is their cruise control so cruise control what it is it basically is what it is in a car they've got a troll mode so don't get confused with that they've got a troll mode so a slow trolling mode which is up to i think about around that thousand uh thousand rev mark so if you're slow trolling for kingfish or you and i pat with slow trolling for trout in the river or whatnot you can use that but then you've also got the cruise which is anything above that say 1000 so if you're trolling for bluefin tuna and you're sitting at that say 1800 mark which will give you roughly your, your seven your six to seven knots which is your 10 to 12 k's so that's the average speed we troll at you set that if you're going down a wave it doesn't actually um lower your speed or up your speed so you fall down a wave quite often your engine starts to rev out a little bit it might go to two two to two three but it's going to main this act this cruise control will actually maintain your revs and the speed that you want to stay at but not only that pat if you're out uh say you and i gone for a long trip um down chasing tuna and we're driving back from say apollo bay and we're in a following sea and you're driving down ways and up and down ways quite often you're very active on the uh on the controller so you you're just pushing yourself up and down where this cruise control will actually maintain your speed so it's pretty cool technology that mercury have and I'm excited, excited to get the 175 on the back of the North Bank. I think one of the things that people were excited about during the week, Redmond, was your post around Snapper. Um, now, very quickly, we're going to delve into a bit of this um, in the next segment when we have our uh, social club, a bit around the tackle that you use, the gear that's needed. Um, but you're into the snapper. Yeah, pretty exciting. First of September, spring was in the air well and truly. And I, when, whenever they say you see a dragonfly in the sky, that's when you start ch- uh, chasing snapper. And I saw, we saw dragonflies as well the day before. And that's, I said to the boys, I'm going to go for a snapper tomorrow. So I actually headed offshore into the ocean where we fish for the snapper. And I got a beautiful fish. And when I say beautiful fish, it was 90 centimetres and around that eight kilo mark. So that's a, that's a, it was literally in the first 10 minutes of being there. And then the wind picked up and we actually ended up coming in. So we might have got another one, who knows. But we got a beautiful fish. Awesome to get this time of the year. Up early in the morning, were you targeting tides or what was the technique behind hitting them? You're spot on. And fishing inside the bay to the ocean is different. And uh, I like to fish early mornings at times if I can get a tide especially but I didn't have a tide till that nine nine o'clock mark so I launched at eight o'clock so it takes me two seconds to get to the ramp and I literally launched and we're out there anchored up probably 8 30 and then like I said smack bang on that tide we got that fish and then we fished sat it out a little bit longer but it was um quite rough out there and we weren't enjoying it was swinging around so we ended up pulling the pin and coming in but Ocean fishing is different to uh, bay fishing. Uh, I'll, you will fish during the day at times, but quite often in the bay, it's all about that sunrise and sunset. 
And snapper season isn't far away. And obviously over the next dozen show, half dozen shows before snapper season kicks in, we're going to have as much information as you possibly can. But up next, The Social Club, you're listening to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich. And don't forget to download the new Real Adventures app. It has all of our latest podcasts, fishing news, tips and recipes. We'll see you after the break. You're listening to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years. Welcome back to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years, and it is now time for the social club. And I'm going to pass the baton to you, Patrick, up first. Up first, Lance has a question. Off the back of your post during the week, Aaron, what bait were you using to catch your snapper? Yeah, good question. Uh Leading into the snapper season, we're going to be doing different methods, whether we're offshore or inside the bay. Now, in the ocean, you don't you fish completely different, Pat. So we're fishing with uh, heavy sinkers. I do like to put an unweighted one out, out the back, a floater, but it doesn't last that long because the cooter and the likes will strip it pretty quickly, even the arrow squid, yeah. which I had dramas with. Uh, but the, fish, the, the bait that we got that nice fish on was literally, I caught a big squid offshore the other, well, a week ago. Uh, the long tentacle, the cannula, the long tentacle off it. So not all the tentacles. It was the uh, probably 12 centimetres long of that tentacle. It was quite thick. And I do what I don't normally do is I worked it around the hook the th- like about three times on, on it. And then I had it hanging off the back as like a tail. So it swum. Hence the reason is pinning your bait once. Uh, the reason that I'd worked it onto my hook was just because it was a thin bit of squid, the reef fish are really bad down there and they'll just take it and rip it off. So two or three times, when the, and on the end of that cannula, it's it's all the tentacles and the suckers are right on the end. Just above it is actually very, very soft tentacle. And that's why I worked through that soft stuff and it sits on the hook really nicely. And you got to remember that I'm not actually casting this out. Uh, it's, a, it's a straight up and down rig. So the rod sits straight up and down in the rod holder. So... And with a with a dropper above the sinker on a short dropper, so it won't tangle like it would having a longer leader with the cast out rigs as we talk about. So it's not going to tangle as such like that. But having that tail at the back of it, it actually sort of similar to a soft plastic pad. Looks it looked actually similar to a white minnow plastic to be honest with you with the squid tentacle. And that's what we got that fish on. So it wasn't a big bait. It wasn't a big salmon chunk. I had also big calamari rings down. It was an eight kilo fish that was literally caught on probably a 12 centimeter bit of squid on a uh, five o gamagatsu circle. But heading into the snapper season in the ocean, calamari is going to be my dominant bait as well as salmon. People will go, well, pillies, you get snapper on pillies. Well, you do. And I'm sure you'll catch a lot of fish, a lot of snapper on pillies if you can keep the bait down there in the ocean. you got to remember, you're yep. fishing the rubble, you've got gurnard, you've got flat edge, you've got... We're, snappy, we tend to be off the reef a bit, so we're not going to get too much uh, blue throats and the likes, but still, it doesn't last long down. There's so much life in the bottom of the ocean rather than what is in the bay. And I know flat is bad, but, yeah, not as bad as offshore. What's determining the... The, just coming back to the sinker size, what's determining your sinker size? Is it movement of the water and the current that's, um, that's down there or is it trying to get past those pickers or depth of water? Like what's going through your head when you're picking your sinker size yeah, and good. changing it from, from bay to offshore? Yeah, good question. So in the bay, we're fishing that, say, on average 10 to 18 metres with during the hot periods of summer. We're probably fishing 20, uh, but usually 10 to... Yeah, 18 metres is our rough depth that we're fishing in the bay. And we try not to use sinkers, so they're free falls through the water. And in Port Phillip Bay, where you fish 
most of your snapper, there's minimal to no tide. There is a tidal effect, but not enough to pull your baits. A bait will sit there, no worries, on the bottom. In the ocean, because I was fishing in 30 metres, which is nearly double on average what I fish. Uh, so you're not cut, like I said, I had to cast out bait out the back, which was slowly sinking through the water column. But the pillies and a strip of salmon and a chunk, they just don't get to the bottom quick enough for me. So why the sinker that I use is that my number one rule is you need to be making sure it's hitting the bottom. That's number one. But also in the ocean, when you're dropping down in 30, 32 metres of water, if you have a one-ounce sinker, which will get to the bottom and hold it pretty good, you got to remember that it's going to take quite some time to get down 30-odd metres, Pat. So I tend to go with that four-ounce. And the fish aren't as picky in the ocean with sinkers and such like they are in the bay. It's completely different. We're going to have so much information in the coming weeks on setups for in the ocean and the bay. And like I said, plenty, plenty more. We're going through rigs, tides, burling, whatnot to burly. So make sure you stay tuned to our shows in the next few weeks. Next one, Redmond is from Reese. My father-in-law has told me to turn my sounder off at rest when chasing gummy sharks. Surely this is an old wise tale. We've actually spoken about this a fair bit, Redmond, and it's not as far-fetched as what some people think. There is merit to this. Uh, I use it when, back in the day, on the charters, or if I'm taking a mate out that wants to catch something, I'll say, oh, geez, we forgot to turn the sounder off. That's why we didn't catch a fish. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I leave it on, but I can guarantee you that it is pinging down the bottom. You can hear it in the boat yourself. So... I don't know, like, I I must admit, I reckon I've left it on 99%, 99.8% of the time, and I've done reasonably well on the fish, so I can't really comment on turning it off. Maybe you should try turning it off, and there'll be no fish for anyone else. But, <laughs> but, but seriously, I don't reckon it does a hell of a lot. Pat, what are your thoughts on it? I don't think it does. I've never turned mine off, ever. <laughs> it was only when we were asked on this, this very show, and you can get all of our uh, Real Adventures show on our um on our app and wherever you download your podcast. We've spoken about it often, but no, I've never bothered to do it. And mainly because I fish with you and I've generally gone okay. So perhaps an old lifestyle, but there's certainly people that do it. Oh, Matt, there's a lot of people that turn it off. Tony, our good friend Tony, and we're, we're once we get you back into Victoria and we can do the show together, we're going to get Tony on. We're going to have a great conversation with Tony. Uh, he's an old school fisherman from Queenscliff. He doesn't even turn his sounder on to find his spots, Pat. He's he's got them all in his head with his landmarks. <laughs> so he has no issue with it. Maybe that's why he catches more whiting than me. But there is definitely people that turn it off. Uh, I have tried it. I honestly have. Uh, I don't know. People. I get a few people on the boat that have listened to our show and go, oh, you mentioned turning the sounder off. Maybe you should try that. I'm like, yeah, I was... I don't think it that makes a difference. But anyway, it doesn't yeah, we'll we'll leave it on for a bit. Anyway, up next question, Andrew, it's for you, Pat. Um bit of a discussion point here actually to come off the back of this question. Pat, what size fuel tank have you got going in the North Bank? Uh in the North Bank I've got a three hundred and fifty litre tank. Um I know I think you've got a one fifty or a two hundred litre going in your yep. six meter. I think I want to say with most of the time when you're matching fuel fuel tank size to, to outboards, the ratio is almost one-to-one. If you're going to put a 150-horsepower engine on it, then you sort of need at least 150 litres of fuel. Um, if you're going to go, you know, significantly offshore, chase fish and do sort of really big days in the water, then you might, you know, look at upping that sort of fuel tank range. But I think majority of the time, you're pretty safe if you're matching one-to-one resonance. 
Yeah, I reckon you're spot on. And that, for me, I think it also depends on your fishing you're doing, Pat. That's a massive aspect to it too. Uh, the reason I want more is if I'm heading out off um, Lake's Entrance, for example, to chase a swordfish, I want to have an extra 100 litres there to get me bloody back, to be honest with you. So, like... It just depends on the size of your boat, what fuel you're doing, and what size engine you have on the back, like you said. So I ideally want, for me, the biggest fuel tank, I'm going to try and go the two, or I've got the 200 in the six meter, and that yep. should be enough. It's a 175 Merc. It's not going to use a hell of a lot of fuel. And to cover your backside, it never hurts to carry on those long trips out a 20 liter jerry can just to back you up, or a 40 liter, two, two of them if you want to, make sure enough it's enough to get back from where you're actually coming from and a lot of the, there's some, some really good manufacturers of sh- uh, soft shell fuel tanks now as well so they're, they're really sturdy and, and, and solid um, but they're made out of almost this rubberized material which you can't puncture so if you've got a you know dry storage somewhere under the floor you can whack it under there if you even need that extra fuel. Yeah, and like I said before, with your, I know you've gone your your issues. Obviously, your weight a bit, Pat. It's trying to stay under that Ab- three and a half. A- absolutely. Like if, if weight wasn't an issue, then I probably would have gone. Given what we're going to use the boat for, at least four hundred, maybe even four fifty. But the key with most trailer boats is keeping it under three and a half tons because as soon as you go above that, everything changes. The fuel, other the, the vehicle that you're using trailers the works like everything just goes up that next level so we were really trying to and, and really cognizant of the fact we wanted to keep it under you know, 3.5 tons so i think fully loaded with gear we'll, we'll end up at about 3.3 so it's sort of you know safely underneath that yep perfect that was the social club we are now heading to our dream boating destination but if you do want to send a question in to pat or myself make sure you download the real adventures app and send us a question, and we will answer that for you guys. Patrick, we are heading to Ningaloo Reef today for our dream boating destination. We are heading to Ningaloo Reef, which is a World Heritage Site located northwest of uh, Western Australia. Um, incredible place, roughly um, 1,200 k's uh, from Perth, so you really it's not a small, do a day small, there. small fourteen-hour drive from Perth, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, you're really not doing your sort of day trip. You are gonna uh, you know, most likely fly up there. Now, Ningaloo Reef is known, amongst other things, as, a, as an incredible spot to uh, dive with whale sharks. But in many opinions, in many um, fishing opinions within the industry and dive opinions, it is actually a better reef system in terms of aesthetically and how beautiful it is than the Great Barrier Reef. And if you talk to any Western Australian, they'll all <laughs> say it's better. Um, and having been there a few times, it's hard to argue. It is one of the most picturesque places you could possibly uh, imagine. And when it comes to fishing the region, um, it's quite astonishing. And there are some marine parks in the area, but while we talk about diversity of species, it's quite incredible. You've got tuna, wahoo, billfish. I'm going to mention sailfish there because they are heavily targeted there and they are a beautiful fish to catch. One problem with it, Pat, is launching of of your boat uh they don't have a lot of actually i shouldn't say they don't have a lot they don't have uh launching facilities there other than the beach so you are launching off the beach the inshore reefs which is just literally 
off the shore, Pat, literally where he, anywhere along there, you're going to get GTs, you're going to get Queenfish, other brands of our Trevally also too. So it's a place that I need to go to. You've been fortunate enough to go there and I, uh, it's definitely on our list to go. And I reckon we might even have to feel a Real Adventures episode there, Patrick. Well, I think so. And that's the reason why uh, most people that fish that region, they're, they're fishing with plate boats because yep. you need something lighter than um, than a glass boat launching off the, the sand. So, um, yeah, incredible place. There's some great places to stay um, up there as well. And when it comes to uh, chartering and things like that, there's Flyfish, Ningaloo <laughs> Reef and Exmouth, which is one of the um, the great sort of guided tours and one of the most highly recommended in the West as well, Redmond. You sounded like me then. That was the dream boating destination. This is Real Adventures for BF Goodrich. Get up to $150 cash back when you purchase four or more BF Goodrich passenger or SUV tyres. Get in before September the 30th. On Real Adventures, it's time to get all aboard for Dometic Mobile Living Made Easy. Welcome back to the show, and it is now time for our Real Adventures Rewind. All aboard for Dometic. Spend your time enjoying your adventure and less time worried about your drinks with the Dometic CFX3. And today's All Aboard is a Real Adventures Rewind when NRL and fishing legend ET joins the show. It's none other than Andrew ET Edding Housing. Good morning, ET. G'day, boys. How are you going? Going not too bad. I'm looking forward to this chat, Patrick. Well, I'm as well, ET. This is Series 20 for Escape with ET on 10 Bold. When you first started and when it was first pitched to you around the creation of a, of a fishing show, did you ever in your wildest dreams think it would be as successful as it's been and entering 20 seasons of it? Yeah, no, definitely not. I think, uh, you know, I was sort of playing um, rugby league and I was thinking, wow, what am I going to do after, after I finish? You'll be in that position at some stage in your life. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a pretty crazy thing because, you, you know, you're a long time retired and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to, got to come up with something I, I really would enjoy to do. And, you know, I, I guess I went out with uh, old Rex Hunt. He took myself and plug a locket up to the Northern Territory and, uh, and we had a great week fishing and, you know, we were floating around the pool at the end of the day and, and Rex has looked at me and he said, well, E.T., how do you like my office? And I was like, wow, mate, this is what I want to do. He said, well, you go and do it, son. And so I used to be on Channel uh, Channel 9 at 5.30 and, or 5 o'clock and, and Rex was on Channel 7 at 5. And often he'd give me a ring and say, oh, mate, the show was a beauty today. <laughs> it was quite a, yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal. But we had, um, you know, it was uh, getting the show off the ground. It was my last year of footy, so I only had Wednesdays off training. I'd fly out Tuesday night, film all day Wednesday, and hope I had a show in place. So it was a bit of a full-on year that last year of footy, and uh, but you know it sets the pathway for um, for 20 years, I guess. That is quite extraordinary to be able to do that during the week. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it now. Imagine you trying to do that with me. Imagine you and I trying to do that. I'd be so angry. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to do. Yeah, it was a bit of fun, let me tell you. And, and you know what? It was just everything worked to plan. We, Whatever I was targeting was sort of caught that day, and it was just really – we got 22 shows away that first year, and uh, it was, um, yeah, quite quite amazing, actually. And we had, you know, obviously last year of a long footy career, it's uh, quite a bit of celebration went on around that year. So we had, uh, yeah, big testimonials and all sorts of things. So <laughs> it was a big year, that, uh, that year 2000. 
Now, let's talk about destinations. You've uh, you've been up to Albany of recent times, obviously filming for Series 20. Let's talk a little bit about that region and Cape York because judging by your social media um, Look like a boring photos, trip, is that what you're going to say? <laughs> look terrible. Oh, it looked horrible. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's always good fun. The great thing about... Uh, um, you know, being on air like this, I've been able to go out with a lot of friends as well over the years and meet a lot of people who, you know, we you know we all share that same common love of the outdoors and love fishing and you know, um, I just think that whole experience is always enhanced when you you're sort of going to places and and these people all think pretty much the same as you, you know. So uh, you know, the fishing up there is um, exceptional at times. They've got. Uh, so many different species to go and target and that's what I, you know, it really makes it uh, easy for a fishing show when you can get out there and one day you're targeting mackerel, the next day you're after barra, the next day you're after coral trout, uh, GTs, they get so many different species and I usually get to go with a group of mates as well so I took up uh, about four mates from down in Sydney and we just have a ball up there so it's almost the easiest, uh, the easiest shows you can make when you're doing those ones. But, you know, there's always that other side where, you know, on the weekend we were at, uh, you know, the big Port Stephens game fishing tournament and, um, you know, the water was cold, the, the fish were, were not uh, there, there was no bait fish, the current was roaring. And so you can go on shoots where it can be completely opposite as well. We're taking us through that, the marlin bite. Now, the south coast, a uh, little rumour tells me that you're going to be pushing down south slightly from that direction now. It's been fishing pretty well down at Eden now. It started to, the current looks like it's going to slow up, the bait ball action. Why do you think Port Stephens just isn't firing like it had five years ago, even? Honestly, I've got no idea. Every time of this year uh, comes around, there's obviously a whole pile of different um, weather patterns that, uh, that cause havoc up there. In the last two years, they've only been able to fish pretty much one day because the second day's been blowing. Uh, 30 knots yeah. gale force winds and and just uh, it makes for a you know it makes for a long weekend when you've gone all the way or travelled and, and there's Victorians who travel up to up to these tournaments and uh, are hoping to catch their big fish and get up there and basically there's uh, no fish about so it means two days of trolling and they can be the longest days ever when you're out on the water trolling for marlin and not getting even the closest <laughs> looking but um, yeah I, I guess. Uh, yeah, just weather patterns, you know. I think um, down at Eden, as you said at the moment, sounds like there'll be a pile of people down there if there's uh, bait balls <laughs> firing and and the, and the water temp's good and the and the, the marlin are there biting, you know. And actually, I'll probably be one of those out there as well, so I'll probably see you there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not far away till I actually head to Eden. But when you do, um, when you are filming for marlin as such, it's it's really. I always talk about it on the show part. It's really important to chase the currents and actually look for that water, isn't it? Like, it's no worth, not worth just throwing your boat in at Port Stephens because they caught them there last year. It's about understanding the actual area itself, isn't it? Oh, 100%, yeah. Now, I'm basically every single day I'm glued to the SFT charts, the rip, rip charts, and just looking and looking at where these currents are forming, how they're moving, what sort of water temperatures there are, where I'm actually going to have to go to, to catch my marlin. And you can see it if you look at, say, the, the New South Wales border, you can have a look right right up the coastline and you can work out where the fish are going to be, but it's not often where, where you're, uh, you're intended uh, to fish, a bit like Port Stephens, uh, you know, the, the fish just aren't there at the moment, but they're down in Eden. So, um, you know, that's where I'll be heading 
to chase my uh, to, to enable me to be able to shoot um, fishing shows. You need to have the fish. So no sh- no show without me fish. So it's uh, it's one of those situations. You've got to. Um, uh, you know, really be constantly looking at the weather, constantly looking at the SST charts, which is the sea surface temperature and the currents. They're crucial. If you had your choice, ET, fishing out of a, a big game fishing vessel or your Quintrex 650 yellowfin, obviously it's lovely to fish out of a, a big boat, but you can tow this thing, as you said, you know, all over the state to be able to chase these fish. That's obviously an important part of, of fishing for, for marlin. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think um, the great thing about a trailer boat, it does give you that uh, versatility because you don't have to fish in that one particular port you're moored up in. Um, The great thing about uh, uh, a trailer boat, and I've been very fortunate to have Quintrex and Evinrude on board for a number of years now, probably 10 years. And uh, a couple of years ago, we actually, I thought, right, I really want to do something impressive this season. Let's take the, uh, I had a seven metre yellowfin, and I said, let's go and test it to the limits and we'll go right up the top of Australia and see if we can catch a giant uh, black marlin. And uh, that's exactly what we did. We uh, tra- trailered it from Sydney, 3,000 kilometres up to uh, Cooktown and then out to Cooktown, went right up to uh, Lizard Island and, and then fished the reefs out beyond it. And fortunately, we landed three fish and one of them was up around that, somewhere between oh, 800 pound and 1,000 pound, I reckon, a big girl. <laughs> and to get it out of the trailer boat, let me tell you, it was hard yet. <laughs> <laughs> ET, I want to ask you a question now. I, um, I, I, in my career from fishing, I was doing it commercially. I was making money off it with a, with a guiding service I had for a number of years. And then I got into the, the media side of it and I'm really enjoying really enjoying fishing again in itself in your 20 years of actually doing it for work and for money at any period of time you've actually said look i'm only doing this for work or have you actually been fortunate enough to enjoy it the whole way through well i, I still enjoy fishing right to today so that's that's a pretty good thing and i guess it's a good indication but um over the years it's uh you know it is a business and um like i said if the fish aren't biting at port stevens i spent one day there um, and then I'll, you know, I'll take off and head all the way down to Eden tomorrow and, and, and see if I can catch fish down there because I need fish to, to make a, a, a good show. And, um, but, you know, over the course of the years, I think the hardest part in for me is, uh, is keeping um, the sponsors happy. And people think that when you're on television, you're actually uh, you're making all this money as soon as you get on television. But what happens is, you know, basically you're paying the network to get a spot on on television. So before you even before you even turn your cameras on and roll one frame of footage, uh, you're already paying uh, you know thousands and thousands of dollars to the network to actually be on air. So gone are the days where you used to get paid to put your shows on. These days they charge you to put your shows on. And above that, you've got to go out and then find a whole pile of sponsors who are going to, um, you know, be keen to work with you. And and hopefully you're going to be able to do the right marketing job for them and and get, um, you know, lots of sales. And basically that's how the the real nitty-gritty of it all works. And over the years, you know, obviously, uh, um, you know, we've had a number of different companies and sponsors over the the years. Actually, the last five years, I've had the same companies on board, which has been fabulous. Uh, It makes my job real easy, but um, 
you know, it's it's always very difficult as different things happen. The the GFC changed the marketplace back ten years ago, and you know we had had it really tough with sponsors. And you know, without the money from sponsors and without that investment, you just cannot make a show. So at those times, very stressful. Uh, yeah, you're looking, thinking about okay, what other jobs can you do? But uh, fortunately, <laughs> I was able to get through, and I've had some good companies back me since. Now, on a serious note here, I reckon I could nearly take some. Um, I reckon I could take nearly a payoff at ET for the amount of people I've sent to uh, ET seasick tablet. <laughs> oh well, they're gold. Those things, let me tell you, they're, they are gold. It's, uh, I couldn't fish you know, without. I'm actually seasick too. <laughs> I'm actually not joking. I've got like I don't get seasick, but the boys, uh, everyone, I'm, like I said, I'm going on my annual Marlin trip for fun, not for work, in a couple of weeks, and every one of the boys <laughs> of the crew are all in your tablets. <laughs> one three seasick. I tell them to give them a ring. Yeah, 1300 seasick. That's the name. <laughs> one, three, that number and, and, and the heavens are open for you. I can tell you. Uh, it's a lot of people's lives, it's, including my own, you know. I love to do it outside fishing, but there's nothing worse than seasickness. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always on the blower to the pharmacy yard. Hey, boys, I need some more pills. <laughs> yeah. ET, before we let you go, uh, yep. uh, Series 20 for Escape with ET is out now. Is there one particular episode or one particular fish that you caught throughout the series that uh, that really capped it off for you or was your favourite catch of the series? Yeah, it's a funny one. You know, when I, was, I sort of started pencilling down all the different species that we've caught and, um, you know, over the course of a series, wow, you catch... Oh, many, many different species. And, and often it's uh, one of those catches that you you sort of, um, yeah, not a fluke, but you sort of go, wow, I shouldn't have caught that one. You know, I was only on, <laughs> uh, I ended up catching this uh, big snapper on a, on a whiting hook and about uh, six pound line. And it was about an eight kilo snapper. So you'll have to stay tuned for that one. That was a, that was quite amazing. You know, you're sort of out there fishing for something and, and the, the, a big snapper comes along just out of the blue and, managed to get it to the boat i don't know how but uh those sort of those sort of things happen from time to time and yeah really make your day uh entertaining hey well we'll be tuning in to escape with et on 10 bold and check your local guides right around the country andrew eddinghausen thanks for joining us this morning on real adventures great to talk to you boys and good luck with the footy this year that was the real adventures rewind for Dometic mobile living made easy and now it is time for red's review for auto one get dad something he'll love this father's day at auto one and today's topic because we've talked a bit about snapper and we're going to be talking a fair bit more about snapper in the lead up to snapper season and today it's all leader types so when I say leader types, I'm going to talk to you about different strengths I use and whether I use fluorocarbon or just normal mono leader so First of all, mono leader is what I use. I don't like fluorocarbon. So just your normal standard leader that you buy from the store. Not fluorocarbon, not tough trace, just normal leader. The reason is I don't, not a massive fan of fluorocarbon. I've got reasons for when I do use it. For example, marlin or really light line class fishing for brim and whatnot when you're trying to get down to four and six pound. But today's snapper and I'm not a massive fluorocarbon user. So the reason I don't like it is I find it quite hard to tie knots. So you tie your knots and it's very rigid line and doesn't pull tightly on each other as nicely as it does with normal line. Yes, fluorocarbon, you can get down on a lighter class, but with snapper, you don't really need to. But going back to t- size of mono that we're going to use, so the poundage. Now, in the ocean, 
I'm going to use probably around that 60 pound mark. The reason I'm going to stay around that 60 is purely because of the other fish I catch. And also, and what I mean by the other fish, I mean gummy sharks, possible thresher sharks, even a mako can pick up your bait across the bottom, which has happened plenty of times. So 60 pound, I know it's not going to cover your backside uh, with a mako, but it gives you a bit more, uh, if you hook it right in the corner of the jaw with a gamma circle, it's going to give you more of a chance, a 60 than the 40 or 30 that you're going to have rubbing against its skin. So 60 pound is definitely what I use for in the ocean for that reason. And the fish aren't as picky like we spoke about earlier in the show. We're in the bay. Well, another factor in offshore as well is the fact that the snapper have quite sharp teeth. So they're feeding on baits and the likes. They're traveling around and they've got quite sharp teeth where when they come into the bay, is where we're now we're going to talk about the size of leader for the bay, is early season, I would probably run maybe that 40 to 50 pound in the bay. Uh, 50 pound was pretty much my go-to early season because their, sh- their teeth are still sharp from uh, from um, in the ocean. Where in Port Phillip Bay, when they come in and they start grinding on the bottom and everything, the mussels, the crabs and the whatnot, their teeth actually somewhat blunt and a hell of a lot really quickly. So further into the season, after a couple of months in, I'll then drop my leader line down to if 30 pounds, sometimes 20 pounds. 20 is getting a bit light, but around that, if you're not getting a bite and you want to throw one out just in case with 20 to see if that's the reason on the day, you can try that. But like I said, 30 pounds is pretty much what I'm going to be using once the season kicks in. So if I, just to sum it up a little bit, I wouldn't be using fluorocarbon, just normal leader. I use uh, Unitika leader, silver thread. You can use Jinkai, you can use Black Magic, whatever you want to use. Uh, but I wouldn't be buying any of your tough traces of your fluorocarbon. Stay away from that. 60 pound in the ocean. You can get away with 40 if you really want to put it out, but you will get fish on it, obviously. And the snapper shouldn't give you too much grief with the circle hooks hooking up in the corner. But like I said, their teeth are sharp. So be mindful. And into the bay, we're going to tack around that 30 pound to 40 pound, 20, if you really want to try and get a bite. So that's the leader we're going to be using for snapper. And that was Red's review for Auto One. If your dad really loves cars, Auto One's the number one place to go this Father's Day. We'll see you after the break. You're listening to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years. Welcome back to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years. And Patrick, we're not far off uh, finishing up the show, but first, the weekend weather isn't looking too bad. What about you before you get out for a, for a game of footy tomorrow? I'm going to do a little bit of fishing in a sec, I'll tell you. But are you going to get out in the Gold Coast today or tomorrow before the game? Yeah, and I've, and I've actually seen quite a few uh, AFL footballers up here doing a bit of fishing in their spare time. Eddie Betts? It's one of the... It's one of the things, Edward Betts, uh, the big Nick Nat as well, was spotted during the week uh, casting a line in. It's great, obviously, fishing. Um, if you're going to go you know, offshore in boats, we can't do that. But what we can do is fish the estuary systems. And Tommy Hawkins went out during the week, caught himself a few brims. Did he? So, big um, Tommy. He, he did. He he bought a, uh, a $30 outfit from Kmart. <laughs> and uh, he had, I'm not joking, they were the biggest pilchers I've ever seen, and he was using these whole pilchers with these tiny hooks in um, in one of the Gold Coast estuaries. He's like, oh, what do you reckon about the bay? I'm like, look, I, I wouldn't go the whole pilchers <laughs> unless you're trying to catch like a bull shark or something. 
there are, they are there, but I'm, I'm not sure he was super well. Fair enough to Tommy. You probably like with your hands signal. I'll get some pillies this big, which is in comparison. <laughs> the man's a giant. His hands were probably four foot long when he did that. Oh, poor Tommy. I'm gonna. I, I did. I did say to him, look, just just get some uh, some cockles or some pippies next time. That's <laughs> the, probably the safest bet out of everything, or some bash yabbies for the for the estuary, but. Um, yeah, I think he'll rectify the way that he sort of fishes. What about yourself? Are you going to head back for the snapper now that the, the water temperatures are starting to change? Um, well, you've obviously been hitting the, the gumbo as well as well. Just quickly, whatever the Tommy is doing, just let him do it peacefully because he's playing some amazing football at the moment. Us Cats <laughs> you just be quiet and leave him alone for us Cats fans. Uh, after this, I'm going to ask the missus if I can head out. Uh, I told her I'd stay home today, but I might try and sneak out for a whiting, so... That's up to her. Uh, she's in, she's actually in the other room. We'll have to pass that by. But start tomorrow is going to be northerlies. Uh, if it doesn't get up, I'm going to yeah. I might have a look for a snapper again. There's a disease that gets yep. around uh, Victoria that's not COVID. Patrick probably shouldn't be joking about diseases at the moment, but it's called snapper fever, which people get in Melbourne, <laughs> and I can understand why because I got that fish the other day. And I'm not a massive snapper person. I do enjoy catching them, but I like my other species. But it, it's grown on me a little bit. <laughs> it's time for Red's tip. Just quickly, Patrick, if you don't have a sea anchor, get one. It's extremely important. You can call it a sea anchor, drogue, shoot, whatever you want to call it. Type in sea anchor into Google and you'll find exactly what I'm talking about. Basically, it's going to catch you 10 times more fish, especially if you're a drifter or a tidal fisherman. And what I mean by a drifter, if you're, for example, drifting soft plastics trying to catch snapper in the spoil grounds of Clifton Springs, you put your shoot out on a 15-knot day on a southerly, uh, which was fishable off Clifton Springs, it slows that drift down and allows you to fish your plastics at a rate that you want it to be drifting at. If you're fishing tide, you put your shoot out quite quickly at the back of the boat, it pulls you around and it shapes you up to be fishing the direction you want to be fishing about 15, 20 minutes at a time uh, earlier than what it would be if you don't put one out. Extremely important. One of the first things I put out when whiting fishing, gummy fishing in the South Channel, anything tidal, so if you're at home now, see Anchor, Google one. You probably get one for around 40 bucks. Quick review. There you go. That was Red's tip. It is now time for the flying gaff. Take it away, Patrick. Well, the sea anchor might be a perfect fart stage for Redmond. 40 bucks. Ooh. Cheap. My old man's got a crap one, actually. That's a good idea, Pat. <laughs> I might have to get him a new one. I always find the best gifts for ones that you can use for yourself. <laughs> uh, the flying gaff this week, or the flying shotgun, should I say, goes to that of the... Uh, U.S. Coast Guard uh, Cutter Kimball, which was patrolling the Pacific Ocean and had been for the past several weeks. And uh, they just decided to line up and take aim at that short fin maker that was just going for a bit of a nice swim and happened to have the uh, the Cutter Kimball's crew swimming in the water and they decided to, to shoot instead of use the flying gaff. So pretty <laughs> incredible footage. And um, I think it's a pretty good way to scare off a shark just firing off a few rounds into the ocean. So... The flying gas heads to, to them, Redmond. Um, and as always, stay safe in this uh, this COVID climate. Spot on, Patrick. Everyone, do the right things. We'll be on the water soon. You're listening to Real Adventures for BF Goodrich, celebrating 150 years. We'll see you next week. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.